the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning, San Diego Saints. Welcome back. We are starting to put the finishing touches on this series that we have been doing from a book entitled The Kingdom from Creation to the Millennium by Don Enavolson. And um, I'm taking things a little bit out of order here. I'm going over to the last chapter, which is entitled The Presence of God. And um, this is um, a significant chapter. He does a little summary, uh, kind of wrapping things up. Uh, But he wants to make a critical point here at the end. And that critical point is, and hence the name of the presence of God, and I think I'm going to name this uh, on the podcast title, it's going to be Nothing Happens Without the Presence of God. So let's dig in here. Um, The summary begins from the author by him starting off with, much could be said in summary of the kingdom history, um, kingdom of God history, but a final statement he believed to be necessary to keep kingdom living in perspective. It's one thing to talk about it. It's another uh, thing to engage in it, to jump into it, to dedicate yourself to it, to kingdom living. And he says, from early in the history of the redemption and restoration of Messiah, of Jesus, um, the spiritual tone was already set. The kingdom of God is first and foremost, and this is critical, this really is important, the kingdom of God is first and foremost a relational enterprise. Relational, not locational, relational and we had uh, done earlier shows where we discussed what is the goal of the Christian walk? What is the goal of the Judeo-Christian journey? Um, it's not about transportation. It's not about location. It's about relationship. Relationship. And so... I've done previous teachings on uh, the kingdom of God is not locational. It is instead 
relational. And we really have to shift our thinking on this. This, is, this requires a radical 180-degree shifting that, um, unfortunately, uh, Gnosticism, which means uh, basically um, God's plan of Genesis 1 and 2 was flawed, um, implying that Father God didn't know what he was doing when he did his blueprint in Genesis 1 and 2. And uh, basically, the Gnostics uh, were disagreeing by saying, um, no, the material creation is not very good, as Father God declared in the last verse of chapter 1 of Genesis, when he looks over everything he created. And this is on the seventh day as he rested. He said, or he declared, probably a better statement, he proclaimed and declared that Everything he created, including the material creation, was not just good, but he had two words there to describe it. It was very good. And see, Gnosticism basically challenges God's opinion about what he did, about what he created. Gnosticism uh, believes that the material creation came about through another set of gods, Greek gods, called the Demurge. And they were in themselves kind of a second or third string uh, hierarchy of God. They were defective gods. And as such, being defective gods, they could only produce a defective product or a defective creation. And what the, uh, the Gnostics believed was basically... Uh, the demurge, this defective level of Greek gods, uh, created the earth. And so defective gods, being defective, can only produce defective creations, which would include the earth, the material realm. And so that thought process crept into the early church in the first century, especially it was already there um, in Roman uh, civilization with the Roman Empire with being influenced. The Romans were influenced by Greek philosophy, Greek religion, Greek thought. And this is why, I mean, I wrote two books, actually three books on this. Um, God's Got a Problem on His Hands uh, back in 2002. And then I wrote um, The Blueprint, asking whether Father God's Bible design was a Jewish Middle Eastern circular cyclical concept, or was it a Western Greek linear concept? Because the two messages are not the same, and unfortunately we have t- attempted to combine those two messages. And um, I spoke over the weekend at a convention, and I had some props in my hand, and I had a circular compass in my hand, and I raised it, and I said, how do you have a Middle Eastern uh, thought process, a book of 66 books called the Bible, the Holy Bible, written by um, 40 authors, 39 of whom were Jewish, were Hebrews, and then try to interpret Middle Eastern thinking process, their culture, their language, with a Western Gnostic, Greek-oriented point of view 
And so I held up two props in my hand. One, I had a, a circular compass, and the other one, I, in the other hand, I had a um, straight-line 12-inch ruler. And I asked the question, if you were in drafting class, if you were in um, like an architect school or, or learn how to be a, um, a draftsman, and um, you know, you're given tools to carry out your trade, and uh, if I handed you two tools, one of which was a circular compass, and I challenged you by saying, I want you to interpret what the significance is, what's the meaning of a circle, when does it begin, when does it end, how does it end, and I'm going to give you this interpretation tool so that you can describe to me what a circle is, and I'm going to hand you a, a tool called a straight-line 12-inch ruler, linear, straight line. And I said, here's your tool to overlay it, to put it on top of the circle, and you tell me um, what the circle means, what it signifies. You'd probably look at me as if I just, you know, landed from some planet and said, excuse me, that makes no sense at all. doesn't make any sense. Um, and unfortunately, that's what we've done with the Scripture. We have taken basically a Jewish book, a Jewish experience, a Hebrew history, the Hebrew language, and which is the first two-thirds of the Holy Bible. They call it the Tanakh. And it includes the law, the Torah, the prophets, what they call the writings, which is you know much of the historical account. Um, the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the, of the Bible. Um, and they... They have an ex- an experience with God, a frontline, firsthand, experiential history with God, and then we come along later in the first century when we had the good news of the gospel of the kingdom went out to not just um, Jewish candidates as we see in the book of Acts. But also there was this flood of Gentiles that were coming in. I mean, a flood of Gentiles who knew nothing about the covenants and how they have significance today. They didn't understand that. Understandably, they didn't understand. They weren't exposed to it. And, But they, being the goyim, the people of the nations, the Gentiles, because there's only two groups of people in the Scripture. There's You've got the Hebrews, the Jews, and everyone else called the people of the nations, who are known as the Goyim, the Gentiles. And the challenge, of course, you can see in the 15th chapter of Acts, where they have to have a council on how do you, you know, how do you resolve these situations where people who aren't familiar with the law and the prophets and the writings and You know, I mean, they're not oriented to this at all. They have no foundation. I mean, you can't just sell a house 
by focusing on the roof and just say, selling a roof. You need the whole house. You need the, you need the cornerstone, which is Yeshua, which is uh, the name, Jewish name for Jesus. He's the cornerstone. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. It's a building project. And then you, but it's the foundation of the house that God is constructing in Ephesians chapter 2, which includes both Jews and Gentiles, but it's the Hebrew foundation that we Gentiles have attempted to leave out, basically saying the first two-thirds of this book doesn't count. That's what we do when, you know, a lot of times you'll see a Gideon's Bible. I used to hand those out when I was uh, working as a chaplain. And they would have Proverbs and the Psalms in front and then the New Testament and nothing else. Nothing about the covenants and how that was a protocol uh, typology or a representation of what was supposed to happen relationally between God and man. Um, the Jews were an, uh, basically an a, um, example or a prototype of that God was going to use through the covenants to say, this is how I want to interact with my people. I want to bless them. I want to prosper them. Um, and I want to give them their inheritance, which is the land. All these covenants were based on return of the land. And um, what has that got to do with Gentiles? Well, uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, um, that's the framework, that's the setup, where God gives man his purpose, which is to take on the likeness of God, allow God to influence him, to actually indwell him. That's, that's what the, the New Covenant's all about, is the indwelling of the Godhead, first through Yeshua, Jesus, and then later through the Holy Spirit, and then, the, and then uh, even the Father indwells humanity. Um, it's deep stuff. That's profound. It's life-changing stuff. And, um, and then after the man takes on his likeness, he's supposed to image that out to horizontally, to people that don't know God. So we're to be his representatives, to represent him. And so, um, and then with that, God gives mankind, humankind, the earthly creation, the material world. And he says, you run it. I'm giving you authority, which is legal permission, to run this place. We can see that in Genesis chapter 2. And as Father God's making all these animals, he's coming to Adam. And he's saying, hey, Adam, what do you want to call this one? Check this one out that I just made. What do you want to call that one? Never contradicting Adam. It, it, was, it was kind of a co-mission. They were having a good time to do this. Amazing. Working with God. And, and so when God, after Genesis chapter 3, with everything blowing up by the, with this invasion of this heavenly rebellion against God, these fallen angels apparently thought that God's idea to put human beings in charge was dumb. It was, it was just not an idea that they thought. They thought it was stupid. And they said, look, we're more powerful than human beings. We should be ruling 
and having dominion over the material world. And thus, after Genesis chapter 3, when man gets tricked and duped, he hands his authority over to Satan. And now Satan, with his residual power, puts the two pieces of the puzzle together and says, oh, I can take my residual power and now I can operate freely in the material world because now the human beings who did receive the delegated authority from Father God to have dominion and rule and reign, they just gave it over to me because I tricked them into not trusting God. So mankind basically agreed and made a contract with the fallen, rebellious, angelic kingdom of Satan. And so we've been paying the price ever since, and God is restoring all of his kingdom back to the original framework and blueprint of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And he's doing that by having sent his son, who was not just a spirit, he was the son of God, yes, but he was also a human. He was the son of man. And he was demonstrating to us what it's like to operate in the kingdom and have kingdom living. And we're supposed to learn from that, adapt to that, and appropriate that, which means to make it your own. And that's what it's all about. We're taking back the stolen kingdom. And that includes our inheritance of earth. And, we're, and, and this whole thing about circular and linear, unfortunately, the Gnostics influenced the early Catholic Church and later even the Protestant Church to say, you know, it's not about returning to earth to retake, to recapture your lost inheritance of earth so you can do your original design, which is to have dominion uh, over the earth to rule and reign over the earth, the material creation. Rather, it turned into a great escape with Greek thinking to say, well, no. The Gnostics believed that God was wrong, and they said the earth is evil. The material realm is in and of itself intrinsically evil. And here Father God is making the declaration that, no, it's very good in the last verse of Genesis chapter 1. So which is it? Because unfortunately, the Gentiles, when they cut loose from their Hebrew roots, got captivated by this gospel, this Jewish gospel being released into a Gentile empire of the Romans and a a Grecian philosophical system, a religious system. And the Jewish message got warped, twisted, perverted, to be the complete opposite of what Father God intended originally in Genesis 1 and 2. And we, it became a gospel of escape. It became a gospel of transportation. It became a gospel of relocation because the location of the ethos, the ethereal world, the heavenly, uh, became the goal which is the complete opposite of the way the Hebrew gospel works to say, no, we're coming back with our Messiah to retake our 
inheritance of earth, which was stolen away from us through stealth and fraud and deceit. The two Gospels are not the same. And this is why um, God is trying to reconcile and get things straight. And this is the importance of books like Ephesians chapter 2, talking about one new man, one new humanity in Messiah Jesus. But all with the idea of coming back to the relationship of Father. doesn't stop it with Messiah. Uh, if you look at Ephesians 2.18, it says by, no, it's, I'm sorry, it says through the Son, referring to Jesus, by the Spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, we come back, both groups, Jew and Gentile, come back to the Father. Because the Father, getting back a relationship with him after we lost it in the garden, was the whole point of Yeshua coming. He says in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He says, no one, he didn't say gets to heaven but through me, he said, no one gets to the Father but through me. That's a return. That's a circle. That's coming back home. That's a prodigal son's story. I, in fact, I described the scripture as saying, you know, this is about a this whole story is about a family reunion. It's about a homecoming. In fact, that's the name of my most recent book, Homecoming. You're coming back home. And if people say, where does it say earth belongs to man? Well, check out Psalm 115 for starters. It says the heavens, even the heavenlies, are gods. But it says, actually, you know, I'm going to read it out of the New King James. Let me grab it here real quick. Uh, Psalm 115, verse 16. Now check this out. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's. But the earth he has given to the children of men. See, nothing changes from Genesis 1 and 2. We have, I'm sorry, but we have bought a Gnostic um, linear Greek gospel that is not compatible with a Hebrew story about the Lord God of Israel. Don't forget the Hebrews are a prototype. They're an example. We, the people of the nations, the Gentiles, were actually the beneficiary of every interchange between God and the patriarchs when he makes covenants with them regarding the Hebrew people are to be given specific land and they're, act, they're to act and function as a type or a symbol or an example of how God-man relationship is supposed to look like by making agreements, by making contracts called compacts, called covenants. And it's all for the benefit, listen, for the people of the nations. So we Gentiles are to be the third-party beneficiaries, if you will, of a contract, a covenant between 
Father God and the Hebrew patriarchs. Because the Hebrews and their interrelationship with God through these covenants were supposed to be a light to the nations, the people of the nations. Don't forget, when um, Satan took Jesus in the second temptation of Christ in Luke chapter 4 up to the top of the mountain to tempt him, well, what was he going to tempt him with? Satan didn't tempt him with heaven, saying, hey, I'm going to give you heaven. He tempted him with the prize, the goal. Satan showed him the earth and all of the nations of the earth. He showed him the world with all of the nations of the world. Isn't that interesting that Satan knew what the prize was based on what Father God created, and so did Jesus. He knew what the prize was based on Father God's creation. And Western thinking with Gnostic um, ideas crept into the Gentile churches. And we went from a gospel of, a Hebrew gospel of the soon returning kingdom to earth with Messiah to a soon escaping church to heaven to stay there forever and right off the earth. Forget about the nations. Consider them both a lost cause. Satan would love nothing better than for us to write off the earth and the nations of the earth as a lost cause and say, okay, just leave it with the fallen angels. That's what he wanted all along, going all, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when he's tempting Adam and Eve. And we Gentiles, unfortunately, have tried to take a straight-line ruler and interpret a circle with using linear Greek thinking. That's what my second book is about. It's called The Blueprint. You can get it on my website, uh, simpletruthministries.net. And it's not a long book. It's worth looking from a comparison standpoint of how Hebrews think as Middle Easterners and how Greeks and Romans think as Westerners. Completely the opposite. Yet we've tried to say the Greek, Roman, Gnostic gospel um, supersedes the Hebrew blueprint message. That's what my book. That's what that's my second book is all about. So, it's called the Blueprint. You may want to pick up a copy of that and get it on my website, simpletruthministries.net. It's worth reading, especially the epilogue, because the last page is where we contrast eight different areas of how the two groups think so differently. We will see you back after the break to follow up with the presence of God. See you in a bit. Welcome back, saints. So we have done kind of a summary in the first half of the show this morning about um, how things work in the kingdom of God. And so I'm going to just take a little few snippets here uh, from chapter 24 from Don Anna book entitled The Kingdom from Creation to the Millennium. We're on the last chapter, The Presence of God. Um, This statement is probably something that we have to remember. The kingdom of God is first and foremost a relational enterprise. 
a relational enterprise. In other words, man, God, God, man, relationship. And he points out that the extended stay of the Hebrews at Sinai uh, brought on the next step in the restoration of the kingdom to, to bring it to its conclusion. Um, the nation of Israel was presented with the law, which um, specified the limitation of man's sovereignty on the earth. I mean, he, he had authority given to him, but there was some limitations on it. And that's what the purpose of the original, uh, the Torah, the Ten Commandments, were given. And, um, and with that, the instructions for bi- building the Tabernacle of Moses. Um, those five furnishings that were inside the Tabernacle, those were um, types or symbols or shadows of a journey, a relational journey beginning at Passover uh, to go all the way back into um, union with God. I mean, actual union where the human being is actually indwelt by the Godhead. Father God, Jesus, the Messiah, the Holy Spirit. But, you know, that's, that's a profound concept. But that's what those five furnishings of the of the tabernacle show it that all of the journeys I don't care whether you talk about the seven um, feasts of the Lord out of Leviticus 23 those seven feasts notice they're all sevens are also symbolic of that personal journey of relational union between man and God Um, there were seven steps from the trip of the Jews leaving Egypt and heading all the way back to the promised land of Canaan. There were seven phases in that journey. Again, the same thing. God took him out to the desert to say, hey, after 430 years in Egypt as slaves, you don't, you don't know me. You don't know your, your, your God of Israel. You don't know me. We're going to get to know each other by traveling in a very <laughs> desert-like place where you're going to learn this thing called trust. We Gentiles like to use the word faith. The Jews use trust because trust, I think, is a deeper meaning to say you're leaning on God. You're depending on God because when you're out in the desert, you can't, have, you can't start a farm. You can't, you know, just turn on, you know, the, the wells and just say, yeah, I'm going to, you know, be independent of God, make my own provision. No. God tells them in Deuteronomy 8, I brought you out here to test what was in your hearts, to know really if you want to pursue a relationship with your divine Father after spending 430 years in a pagan culture of Egypt. And that is a journey. Um, So the building of the tabernacle provided a visual image of the process of redemption, salvation, and restoration of the likeness and image that was supposed to happen in Genesis 1 and 2. We were supposed to get a, a download, vertical download of God's likeness so that we could do a horizontal sharing of his image. So of great significance, the nation of Israel was given the job. It was commissioned as a kingdom of priests. They were a people who were to initially bear the responsibility for giving out God's image of the kingdom on earth. They had a setback with the golden calf incident. Uh, did not go well. 3,000 people died because they rebelled against God. But um, 
nevertheless, in spite of that, that setback, Father God had promised them to send them to the promised land. And he prepared to make good on his word when he commanded Moses. This is, I'm going to read out of Ezekiel, I'm sorry, Exodus 33, uh, verses 1 through 3. He tells uh, Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, quote, to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. And this was a promise of miraculous power on the part of the, of the Father, Father God, to Moses to overcome all their enemies to bring prosperity, to fight on behalf of his people. Such a command to Moses and to the Jews must have been exhilarating and encouraging to Moses, who had been confronted earlier with the Jews' grumbling and their stubbornness and their disobedience um, of all of the people from the day one of their having the experience of the first plague in Egypt. But Moses thought, whoa, this is amazing. The reward is finally in sight, especially after this communication in Exodus 33. But then the next verse became a shock to Moses. And he, this is where God says, after he's going to send an angel and he's going to overcome all of these enemies, he listed each tribe. He says, but I will not go up amongst you, lest I consume you on the way, because or for you are a stiff-necked people. So when Moses relayed that message to the people, it struck them like a ton of stone tablets. Verse 4 of Exodus 33 calls it a disastrous word. The people lost all interest in the party that had consumed their energy just a short time earlier as they performed the ritual animation of that golden calf, their chosen idol. The words of Father God instructed Moses, which what he was to say, what to speak, were unambiguous and they were sobering. This is uh, Exodus 35, verse 5. How's this for a straightforward message? You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment that I should go up amongst you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, which is referring back to them celebrating the golden calf, that I may know what to do with you next. So, in other words, God was saying to them, I will provide you the power, or in other words, the miracles to defeat all of these enemies. And I'll do it on your behalf. And and on your behalf, I'm going to do all this in the form of an angel who's going to go before you and defeat all of your enemies. But Father God's promise to them would be fulfilled, but he would not go with them. So in verses 7 through 11, the author says these verses have been often cited to show the intimate nature of the relationship. Don't forget, we're talking about the kingdom 
being a relational enterprise. This shows the relationship between Moses and God. Um, in verse 7, it says that um, Moses had pitched a tent outside the camp, which he called the tent of meeting. He entered the tent, and the pillar of cloud that led the Israelites through the wilderness descended on the tent. God spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Isn't that cool? That's uh, verse 11. And the rest of the chapter indicates that the conversation between God and Moses was not simply God speaking and Moses listening. Moses was bold enough in his conversation to challenge God to take him on and to request something different than what God had just decreed. And I'm just going to paraphrase it here. Um, this is out of his uh, Exodus 33:13. Um, the, to paraphrase, this is from the author. He, Moses speaking to God it said, as a friend now, face to face. He says, quote, You commanded me to bring these people to the promised land, and you said that I had favor from you to do that. But now you are telling us or me to, or you're sending us away without you, without God? You're not coming? That's not how I understood the original deal between us. And that's not how I uh, could define favor, the favor of God. And then, interestingly enough, God then agrees to go with them. But the next comment from Moses spoke volumes about the kind of relationship God intends to have with his people. We see that in verses 15 and 16. They are quoted from the NIV in this point of the book. And Moses says, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else would distinguish me and your people from all the other peoples on the face of the earth? So in that deep statement, that's a profound statement, two significant details we should observe. First, the miraculous power is not always an indication of the presence of God. Now think about that. The miraculous power is not always an indication of God's presence. Because he said, look, I'm going to send an angel up there. He's going to do mighty things overthrowing your enemies, but I'm not going to be there. And it's not an indication of his blessings, nor is it an indication of what he wants or his will in a particular situation. The author says the operating system by which the kingdom of God functions is based on authority. We've talked about this a lot in the previous shows, on authority invested in human beings. According to the author, the miracles are just a derivative function of that authority and not directly of the fact of God's presence or not. In other words, it doesn't indicate that God's necessarily there. The power in, in the miraculous ultimately does come from God, but the system operates through the agency of intermediaries known as collectively, as angels. These spirit entities act as agents of power in the expression of authority. 
So in other words, nothing happens with the power until the authority is granted or released. And the author is saying that authority was given to man in Genesis 1 and 2, and Yeshua came to reestablish that authority. So, these spirit entities, the angels, act as agents of power in the expression or the manifestation of authority. Authority has to happen first. Without authority, there is no power. So the system by which creation operates allows intrinsically for the miraculous. Now, he said intrinsically, so check out his next statement. Contrary to popular belief, miracles are not an external imposition on the created order. Rather, they are part of the created order. Miracles are possible by God's design. That's how he set it up. Authority is given to man. Power is given to angels. And one doesn't happen without the other. The power does not get manifested unless the authority is granted. All right, the second thing we need to note, according to the author, is as a natural corollary to the first point, miracles do not set the people of God apart from the rest of the world. The only thing that sets the people of God apart from the rest of the world is actually God's presence. That's the only thing that's capable of setting the people of God apart from the rest of the world is the presence of God. As much as this book, a study, has focused on the mechanics of how the kingdom of God operates, with an emphasis on authority and power and how they are interchangeable and how they depend on each other, neither authority nor power is the ultimate goal. Rather, the kingdom of God is first and foremost, here it is again, relational. I'll say it again. The the kingdom of God is not all about emphasizing power and authority because neither is the ultimate goal. The kingdom of God is first and foremost relational. It's all about relationship. Don't forget we de- how we defined in John seventeen three, eternal life. That they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. No means no relationally in your heart, not just knowing about in your mind. So this relational aspect to the kingdom became a recurring theme in the ministry and the teaching of Yeshua, of Jesus. The 70 disciples were cautioned to rejoice over their relationship with their heavenly Father, not get too excited about the fact that the demons were subject to them. Don't, don't celebrate that power element, is what the warning was from Jesus to them. I mean, he says, look, what you celebrate is the fact that your names are written in the book of life. Many other, others who did do miracles or who do miracles will be shocked to discover that their miracles had nothing to do with their relationship to God. In Matthew 7, 22, the author points out, you know, Lord, Lord, they're whining, okay, W-H-I-N-E, um, did not 
Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast demons out in your name? We did, did we not do mighty works in your name? But the response back was, not everyone who calls to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom, but only those who do the will of my Father. His response was, ultimately, I never knew you. That's relational. I never knew you. So depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's verse 23 in Matthew 7. So Jesus never discounted the importance of the power for healing and deliverance that proceeded from authority that were given you know, to his apostles and his disciples. He gave them that authority. Uh, Jesus assured them, I have given you authority on verse 19 of Luke chapter 4. I'm sorry, Luke 10. He said, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Now, that's a clear statement that authority supersedes power. But Jesus also warned them. He also cautioned them to, against becoming too enamored or in love with the power. Nor was the relational aspect of the kingdom limited to the vertical relationship with God regarding his likeness. It was also very much about the horizontal relationship with other human beings. And in fact, with the entirety of the creation, it was given the same emphasis. The kingdom of God is not established through brute force or by means of coercion, whether it's psychological or or otherwise. The kingdom of God is established through horizontal relationships by being the image of God to the world. That's our job. That's our purpose. We see that in Paul's advice to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.5, was to keep this always in perspective. Quote, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And that love was to be manifested through examples Paul tells Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. This is all to between Paul and Timothy now, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your listeners or your hearers. That's 1 Timothy 4, verses 12 through 16. But all of this, of what we just read in 1 Timothy, begins with the presence of God. He has to be there. Without that presence, as Moses recognized, the people of God are not distinguishable from anyone else. The Great Commission, the last directive given by Jesus to his followers in Matthew 28, highlights the means by which humans step into their role as co-regents or co-governors, if you will, with God. 
And in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So it should be noted that while there's nothing wrong with evangelizing, in fact, we should evangelize, the emphasis in that command of Matthew 28 is to incorporate the kingdom of God ministry into the routines of people in their everyday life. In other words, believers are leaders. We are to represent God. We're to be the image of God to other people. And that is a requisite for everyone, not just for those in full-time ministry or those who are sent out into the missionary field. It touches every part of human existence. Yeshua Jesus telling them to go suggests the ideas of making disciples as you go about the business of your daily life. The pattern of discipleship uh, that we see when the 70 was sent out um, was different from that of the Greek schools. Jewish discipleship was based on an imitation of a lifestyle. The disciples were to leave behind their former way of thinking. They were to commit to a change, uh, and they were to follow the their instructor in this case Jesus and but the but with the Greek system it was different um, the weight of the responsibility in the Greek system um, was all on the student and he had to learn the doctrines he had to learn the concepts presented by the teacher in order to correct the error in others and thus be considered worthy of discipleship and there the weight of responsibility of the kingdom of God would rest with the teacher who's charged with living a life of imitation. But this is a system, the Hebrew system is a system grounded on the idea of taking on God's character, in other words, his likeness, and developing horizontal relationships in which that character is lived out as a demonstration or as an example to others. In other words, you image it. The Great Commission is only fulfilled when the followers of Jesus line up themselves with the restoration of their original purpose. So he wraps up here by saying, whatever power is exercised in the kingdom of God setting, the goal is the deliverance of all people from their evil ways, from their habits of the past, and the spiritual obstructions in their life that prevent them from also experiencing the presence of God. The natural tendency of human beings to exert as much control as possible in every situation makes it fitting and necessary to conclude this study, this book, of the kingdom with a warning. The discovery of our purpose is exciting. Stepping into our authority as as designed for human beings at creation and seeing the overcoming power that flows from that authority, according to the author, it's exhilarating. It is, however all too easy to forget the motivation behind Father God imbuing human beings with authority. That motivation, that purpose was to represent him, to reflect his image, to be Father God's image to the world. That's what Jesus was. That's what he told Philip when Philip said, show us the Father. And he says, you've been with me all this time. Uh, If you're looking at me, Philip, 
you're seeing the Father. Ultimately, that purpose of representing the uh, the Father becomes impossible without the presence of God in our lives. He's got to be part of it. He's got to be there through his Holy Spirit, by his Son, Jesus. Ultimately, the kingdom of God is about relationship with the Father by means of the redemptive work of his Son, Jesus. It's a relationship reflected through the interaction with other people. Without relationship, none of the rest matters. That's pretty heavy. It's a vertical relationship, which is supposed to express itself in a horizontal relationship. God bless you. I hope you have some amazing, simple truth moments. Live two seconds at a time. Ask God to take over every thought and see what he thinks of you. Ask him, how do you see me now? How do you see me now? God bless you. See you next week. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal his Simple Truth Moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.